0: If there's one phrase that sums up the physical therapy profession, that phrase would be, it
1: depends. Welcome to the Tales from the Planth podcast, where we will explore the notorious It Depends phrase through interesting and in depth interviews with physical therapists from all types of practice.
2: Join us for inspiration, laughs, and tips and tricks in starting and improving your clinical practice. Welcome Welcome to to
1: Tales from from the the Planth podcast. all right everybody welcome back to another episode of tales from the plinth today we are all super excited to have the president of our university dr keith taylor on with us dr keith taylor go ahead and say hi to everybody
3: hello there how are you it's good to be on with you
1: yeah we're super excited to have you on thank you again for your time so we were just talking before the podcast Dr. Taylor is a graduate of the University of Buffalo, um, and he got his doctor of physical therapy degree in 1986. So Dr. Taylor, talk a little bit about your time there and about your undergraduate degrees.
3: You know, it's funny. So I am so old that I didn't get a doctorate in physical therapy. I got a bachelor's in physical therapy. We were practicing with four years of education and then I got my master's in orthopedics and biomechanics, uh, also from UB. And then I got my doctorate in anatomy and cell biology from UB. So I was at UB for 14 straight years before I finally got my doctorate. I, you, know, you guys slipped in with yours uh, a little quicker or will when you're done.
1: Yeah, that's the goal, right? We just go, you know, sometimes three years or four years in undergrad and then the three from PT school. So it's definitely nice and it's, it's super nice that Gannon has a program there. Um, so did you go straight through then or did you practice during the time you were getting your doctorate or how did that work out?
3: Yeah, I I started out, so I, I went four years, got my uh, bachelor's degree. My last two years, when I was getting my bachelor's in PT, I actually worked. Um, at a tennis clinic in Williamsville, New York, um, as a physical therapy assistant. So I worked in the clinic the full two years that I was in school. And then when I graduated, my intention was to um, live at home. So I finished up my last clinical in Schenectady, New York, where I grew up. And my dad was, uh, at that time, my mom had passed uh, between my sophomore and junior year. So I was going to stay home with my dad, and I was going to do rehab, which blew the minds of most people that I knew, because I was an ortho sports guy all day long, every day, Um, and literally had accepted a job, and I got a call from one of the faculty at UB um, that said, why don't you come back out, um, get your master's degree in orthopedics, biomechanics, exercise science, um, and we had this cool program, so I actually um, changed my mind when back to UB. I mean, this is all over a summer and started in a master's program at UB. And the way the program worked was I was uh, I worked at Buffalo General Hospital um, and I worked with um, a group of uh, three surgeons. So I was in surgery uh, three mornings of the week. And then I followed their patients um, in the clinic. So I had kind of my own selected group of Patients with those physicians, um, all ortho, um, but I mean, one was a spine surgeon primarily, one did a lot of knees and shoulders. So I did that for a year um, at Buffalo General, about a year and a half. And then I went out to Mercy Urban Ambulatory Care Center and continued to follow their patients, um, but finish up my master's degree there. Um, and then I, I, so as I finished my master's degree, I literally was uh, working with a guy that was also an ortho guy who was uh, teaching at Damon college. And he was just adjunct teaching. So he said, Hey, you want to teach this ortho course? And he was doing mostly McKenzie and some manual stuff. And so we were, we were just fanatics learning anything we can. So we were like, sure. So I went in for an interview in the summer thinking I was just going to teach this uh, course with uh, this colleague of mine. And at the end of the interview, the woman that was interviewing me said, so when can you start? And I thought, I don't know, when do classes start? And she said, well, this is a full-time job. And I said, well, I have a full-time job. She said, well, you can can stay in the clinic, but this is a full-time faculty job. So literally at, I don't know, 23, I accidentally became a faculty member. I went in for an interview and that, so I started like two weeks later as a full-time faculty member. Um, And then coincidentally, I, while I was working, as I said, in college, I was um, working at the Village Glen for Western New York Physical Therapy Group, so I quit my full-time job in the clinic, went back to work at Damon, and for, oh, I don't know, about 10 years, I ran the clinic at the Village Glen in the evenings and weekends, and then I taught full-time, so finished my masters and then finish my doctorate. So I was kind of full-time faculty member in master's program, then in my doctoral program, and then on the side I was running a PT clinic a couple nights of the week and on weekends, and getting married and having three kids. But other than that, we were just hanging out. So what you're saying is you had a lot of free time on your hands. That's clearly, right. long, long, <laughs> long answers. You get the long Taylor answers. You're also telling say- me.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt, that is the absolute hustle that I am used to seeing out of the tailors. MJ, it, from my experience working with her, which was a great time, is the same way. You guys are nonstop busy people who are very, very good at what they do. So that was exactly what I expected to hear.
0: That's awesome. No waste in daylight, right? Only get so many. That's right. So I'm curious, you said you graduated in 1986. So at this, Rehab clinic that you were working at. What were what was like maybe a typical day there? What did it look like in terms of how many patients you saw? Was it a lot of one-on-one care? Um, were there PTAs available? Was there were they utilized a lot? And how how did that kind of work out?
3: Yeah, um, I mean PT assistance existed, but to be honest with you, in the clinic, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever worked with a PT assistant. So from 86 to, I mean, the last time I really practiced practice was probably late nineties, mid nineties, late nineties, um, that there were, there were PT, uh, aides. So back then you didn't, they, they were people like me that were PT students that did a bunch of stuff and it was allowed. And, um, but, uh, the the volume was much less than two. Now I had kind of an odd role in my first job because I had specific surgeons and I was only working with their patients. But you know we used to have well as much time as you wanted really, but you know 45 minutes to an hour to do an evaluation. You might see a couple patients an hour, three if it was really busy in the hospital. Um, and out at Mercy Mercy Inventory Care Center in the sports clinic at the tennis was a much more fluid flow. So there was just people everywhere, Um, but it was kind of a combination of training and therapy. And I was playing a lot of tennis at that point. So we would actually be out on the court um, working with people on the court. Um, So the volume of patients, we were busy, but didn't have the kind of regimented uh, volume That you guys are coming out into practice with now. Um, You had more time to spend with patients. I mean, you you still do compared to you know. I really never had an interest in being a physician um, because I wanted to hang out and and you know work with people for hours and you know weeks at a time to really see their progress. So yeah, it it was a little a little slower pace, more time to sit and interact with patients probably than you have now, um, and a fewer, probably fewer patients at a time. Billing, billables were a little better back then. Interesting. Now I
0: was, gonna, I was gonna ask what got you involved with the tennis clinic. So you're, you play a lot of
3: tennis? Uh, I play some, I used to play a lot, um, but, and you brought up my wife. My wife is actually a tennis pro And this will really make her mad that I'm going to say this openly that in like a set of tennis, she's never beat me, even though she is the professional, but um, but she is a heck of a tennis player. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, we play a lot of tennis, a lot of golf Um, back before I was old and lazy. um, We ran, you know, New York City Marathon, um, used to, used to run a lot. Um, So I actually got into physical therapy because I was a wrestler. So, um, high school, a couple years, um, in, in college wrestled, but I separated my AC joint, um, in, uh, high school lost a year and had to go to, uh, see a PT and I make more probably intentional decisions. Now I became a physical therapist because seemed cool. Um, the person that treated me was a good guy and a buddy of mine was going to UB and I lived in Schenectady. And so I was moving to the other side of the state to hang out with a buddy of mine and they had PT. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's the great decision-making that the 18 year old Keith Taylor made, but actually it worked out pretty well. I was going
0: to say it's gotten you this far. So it couldn't have been that bad of a choice, right? That's right. (laughs) So other than the um, obvious, probably, you know, tennis elbow,
3: what were you seeing a lot of with these tennis players if you can remember? Um, well, I mean, I wasn't just seeing, so I was at a tennis clinic, but um, I should say that. I was at a tennis facility, but we saw all kinds of things. So I, I, I was doing a lot of, mechan- so I saw a lot of back, um, lumbar, cervical, so I did a lot of McKenzie um, a lot of manual therapy, um, a lot of, uh, um, older individuals with frozen shoulders, a lot of, you know, winter time was Collie's fracture, uh, season. So I would have, uh, a group of spry young women, typically I'm not stereotyping, but that would break fall, break the wrist, a lot of Collie's fractures. So every winter we had kind of the clutch of people that were usually the first patients in the morning and got in and were all drinking their coffee and doing their thing. Um, so I, I did see from the, from the surgeons though, I saw a ton of uh, um, arthroscopic uh, work, you know, meniscus, ACLs, MCLs, um, a ton of new hips and knees, um, a lot of uh, shoulder surgery, um, you know, rotator cuff stuff. Um, So the surgeons, I saw mostly younger athletes um, that were um, either ligamentous or meniscal, you know, traumatic uh, types of things. But then I had a whole nother clientele that were kind of uh, aging, total hips, total knees, fractures, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is something that that I think we're all doing right now, and it's kind of developing our own style of practice in these clinicals. And I kind of wanted to know a little bit about, you know, you had mentioned McKenzie and, you know, working with back patients um, and stuff like that. Like, what what kind of style of practice did you lean on the most? Was it from your education and orthopedics and stuff like that? Or was it, you know, did you enjoy practicing with McKenzie type style?
3: Yeah, so... My, so I mean, I taught almost the whole time. I mean, I was only out of school for two years before I was a faculty member, and I was teaching pretty much all the orthopedics curriculum. So I was doing all the McKenzie work, all the osteopathic manual stuff, all the Stanley Paris stuff, um, as well as you know. And in my my master's was in. Actually, science, but biomechanics. So I taught kinesiology and biomechanics, and so uh, and tissue mechanics. Um, so I guess from a spine perspective, I I kind of was a McKenzie guy that would then use other manual techniques if it seemed necessary to move somebody, you know, to the next uh, to the next phase. Um, as far as um, Uh, other joints and uh, kind of soft tissue stuff. I'll have to confess that I wasn't a big myofascial guy. I didn't necessarily buy into all, I still don't into a lot of the taping and some of the, you know, kinesthetic stuff. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but I'm I'm not, you know, a firm believer. I was more into, you know, tissue development. So I was pretty basic. When I worked at Buffalo General, we only had one, um, uh, Cybex, and everybody wanted to be on the Cybex, and it was this—you know—people would be scheduling them, going crazy. And so I had a pair of uh, a thing of Theraband, and I would walk around with my Theraband and my patients. I'd say, "Our Cybex is over here," and it's—it's it's the same stuff. If the muscle is firing, whether it's concentrically or eccentrically or whatever, it doesn't matter whether you're on a Cybex or you got a pair of, uh, a TheraTubing or you're doing squats. As long as you're loading the tissue. At the appropriate levels, it's going to either get longer if you're stretching it or it's going to get stronger if you're working it at the, you know, so I having a PhD in anatomy and being a biomechanist, I was more kind of straight data driven. This is the mechanics. This is what we're trying to, um, you know, see happen. And then you just make the tissue do what it's supposed to do through as functional means as you could, you know, so I, I mean, I like the gadgets. I used all the gadgets. My uh, my research was actually on electrical stimulation, so I I looked at edema um, and electrotherapy in frogs for my master's degree, and then um, microvascular permeability in a hamster cheek pouch. Um, but it, so my my anatomy PhD was really a, as much a uh, microvascular um, microphysiology. Um, uh, design. So I'm I'm pretty focused on things are simple. The body responds, tissues respond the way they do, force them to respond the way you want. If you want the mechanics to work a particular way, put them in a position to get things to fire when they should and how they should. Um, And I think that sometimes we get caught up in somebody's name and a thousand rules as to how things are supposed to happen and it's really just the tissue responding, so make it do what uh, it's supposed to, but I will say McKenzie stuff, um, maybe because it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty simple to understand and it seems to work, you know, so I'm a, I'm a believer.
2: So what made you decide to go for your master's and then your doctorate?
3: Well the master's degree, like I said, I, I had just come out of my uh, bachelor's and the guy that I was working at the village Glen with, I was working for him at the time as an aide. Um, he was a faculty member and so he said, come back and get your master's and we'll pay for it. I will say that I, I have been blessed. So they paid for my master's degree. they paid um, my Damon, I was there for 17 years, paid for my PhD so I made out pretty well on that end of it. Um, But I just love learning clinical stuff in particular. Um, So when somebody says, you can come back and work with these two or three surgeons and be in surgery two or three days a week and just get to focus on their patients and their thing, and it was a pretty sweet deal. So what's not to like? Um, And then when I was a faculty member, um, I The transition to the doctorate was just starting to happen. And actually, we transitioned to the mat. So we were a bachelor's degree. And we transitioned to the master's degree for less than a year. Nobody actually even graduated with their master's degree uh, entry level. And we zipped directly to the doctorate. Um, So I was a faculty member and I became the chair of the program. So while I was the chair, um, we transitioned to the doctorate. And, you know, that was just as, I think, like 1% or 2% of all PTs had a doctorate at the time. So, if you're going to have a doctoral program, you need faculty with doctorates. So, there was actually only one person in our faculty that had a doctorate. So, they wanted more of them. So, they said, we will pay you if you go get your doctorate. Um, And then I became uh, uh, the chair, which having the doctorate then led to the Dean position making sense, which then led to the provost. And so, you know, so life happens.
1: Yeah. So that's what I was kind of going to ask about next is how did you eventually, you know, cause you're a physical therapist, biomechanist, you have all these really substantial degrees, but how did you make the move to Gannon university and and to being the president here?
3: Um, you know, it's, I, I don't really I've never lived my life worrying about what the next step was I mean I just try to be really good and work hard at what you are doing today um, that I never really was even thinking about being uh, president until probably a year before I was one so but I I have I have issues with authority and following rules so I, I'm you know some confessions here. Um, but I don't, mind, I don't mind working for people that I trust and that I respect. Um, but so when I was a faculty member, the chair was retiring. And so I saw an opportunity that I was going to have to work for somebody. And I was like, well, I can do that job. Why don't I just apply and I'll do it as opposed to me having to work for somebody else, follow the rules. So that's where I was. Then I was chair. And then they restructured and they created these two dean positions. And then I saw who was applying to be the dean, and I went, hmm, I could do that job. Why would I work for them when I can just do it myself? Um, so I applied, and I, I got that job. Then the individual that was my supervisor, my superior at that time, was somebody that uh, I didn't have a level of respect uh, for. Um, and if you, if you can't trust and respect and feel like um, you're... Um, you're going to get the kind of support that you, that you need. And I'm not talking financial support. I'm just good decision-making, good planning, good structure. Um, So, and I was there for 17 years. I was there a very long time and I loved it, loved every day of it. Um, But at some point you just know it's time to change, you know, so I applied for other jobs um, at the Dean level actually. And this was the only provost job that I applied for. Um, and I came down here in January to interview, um, because I knew I needed to leave Damon. Um, and again, nothing against Damon. It was my, my boss at the time. But, um, when I came here, I, Damon had Damon's women's basketball had just beaten Gannon's women's basketball in 2005. So I made a joke. No one thought it was funny. I then learned what the intent because Damon's athletics they didn't take it that seriously. I mean, hardly anybody went to games here. It was blood sport. I mean, Gannon basketball was anything and everything. You didn't. So uh, I came down here. I interviewed in January. I didn't find out I had the job until May. It took five months of uh, waiting around. Um, and then when I came here, wow! I didn't realize what the job was. When I came as provost, all of academics all student development, um, housing, you know, res life, food service, um, all of enrollment and financial aid, pretty much everything but finance and uh, facilities and um, fundraising. The whole rest of the university reported to me. So I went from this place half this size as kind of a glorified chair dean to this massive job with you know 80 percent of the budget reporting to me and um which i do find entertaining because i'm running a hundred million dollar business and i've never taken a business class in my life um so but that's kind of how my career has gotten you you figure the next thing out you know you just you see what the issue is you come up with solutions you put smart people around you you trust them you figure it out you know Kind of thing. So I don't know if I answered your question, but
1: no, that's a great answer. And Ben, I know you wanted to ask one, but I just have a quick follow up to that, Dr. Taylor. So I think you hit on something that I wanted to ask about. Anyways, um you know, you don't you don't have a business degree, but you're running a one hundred million dollar business, and this is something that I've seen in a few people who are physical therapists now. Is there's something about being a PT, whether it's your preparedness, your ability to think on your feet, your ability to address things as they come your way, whatever it is that that makes them good leaders. And so can you speak to maybe qualities of being a physical therapist that helped you adapt and, and fulfill this?
3: Sure. You know, a couple of things pop to my mind. One is that um, we talk, Patrick Lencioni is a leadership guy, and he talks about, you um, Ideal team players, and hiring and developing people that are humble, hungry, and smart. Um, so his humble piece is I, I quite often talk about being normal. Now my spectrum of normal, I think I'm normal, so that that'll tell you something right there. But you know, humility and knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and being willing to accept that you don't know everything. I think humility is a, a huge part of uh, being successful as a leader as a human being, as a team player. Um, I think hungry, you know, you mentioned it before. There's not a whole lot of resting. It's, we are going all the time. Um, So I think whether it's a physical therapist, I am a little biased towards wrestlers. Um, I think you'll be surprised how many wrestlers are CEOs and other things that um, the level of intensity in, and again, I, I was an ortho guy. So I spent a lot of time with athletes, a lot of time with people that were pretty motivated, pretty focused on their goals and where they wanted to be. Um, So I I think, you know, being hungry um, and whether that's hunger for knowledge, hunger for, you know, making sure that you're the best clinician, that you provide the best care. um, And then smart is in his words, are people smart. Um, But I also think I really like just really smart people. Uh, I like all people, but from an employer perspective, um, I think physical therapists have that people smart piece, good ones do. You spend a lot of time with people. You have to have good listening skills. You have to listen to not only what they're saying, but be considering why they're saying it. Um, You need to be able to care not only for them, but quite often for their family and for other caregivers that are providing support to them, you know. So I think physical therapists, you know, you've got a, a, an essential need for uh, people skills and the ability to have a genuine care for other humans, and that carries over into managing people, leading people, you know, uh, you know, the whole diagnostics and identifying what are the data points I need to have. How do I analyze and then synthesize a treatment plan and intervention plan is not that much different than running a business. You have to identify what are the, um, you know, and and we focus a lot on it at Gannett. I mean, you need a strategic plan. You need to be looking at what are the challenges. You need to identify strategy and tactics, and then you need to execute on the plan. Um, But while you're doing that, so it's, it's solving puzzles. I mean, that's clinical puzzles or it's business puzzles, whether it's financial puzzles or whether it's, you know, facilities or what it is, all these skills are transferable. Um, That it goes to humble, surround yourself with people that are smart and smarter than you, know that you don't know everything, except that you're going to make mistakes. Um, You know, be willing to work hard and be willing to do any job, you know, and, Don't give me the excuse that the Cybex is filled. Go get your piece of TheraBand. Don't tell me your computer doesn't work. Have you been under there yourself trying to fix it? I mean, do what you need to do to get it done. But most everything comes down to humans. It comes down to being able to work with human beings, understand human beings, care about where they are, and putting yourself second most of the time. I mean, so whether that's physical therapist or president or faculty member or, you know, carpenter, it doesn't matter what your job is. I think those things all translate.
0: That was really well said. And that's a great question too, Dave. And I mean, I think you hit on something that's just coming to my mind is through, we're in week five of our first rotation now. And all three of us have worked before in some capacity, whether it's been like a PT 8 or whatever, where we've been around people, but just consistently, being the one that's really in charge of getting people better now and just seeing how you really have to speak to every patient so differently. You know, you can't use one phrase with every one of your patients as a blank a blanket term and expect them to understand and expect them to buy in that way. I mean, there's, I can think of two examples today, one patient, you have to be very, got to give a lot of TLC to, you know, she likes very quiet, like calm environment. The other one comes in and is ready to rock and roll right away. So it's amazing to me how just being able to have the skill of knowing when to maybe dial it up a little bit intensity wise, you know, with your tone of voice and your enthusiasm versus when you have to tone it down a little bit. And just like the impact that can make,
3: does that translate to business as well? Yeah, I mean, you need to meet people where they are. Um, You need to provide the service. You need to provide what they need and they want. Now, sometimes people think they need something when it's actually what they want, and you might have to convince them that that's a want and not a need. And you might not get that. But um, you know, we we um, uh, affectionately talk about the humans because I my kind of one of my side things is I build furniture and I'm a woodworker and build cabinets and. They don't talk back. The piece of wood either fits or it doesn't. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward stuff. The humans are complicated Um, and you think that you know where they are or you ask them and they tell you the answer. But like you said, yeah, that's what they said, but that's not really what they meant. And you got to So I, I, I think that that's the joy of clinical practice. That's the joy of life. You know, I spend a lot of time in meetings. I spend a lot of time sitting in places just watching people. I love just watching people. People are so curious. They're so interesting that, it, it, you know, as you just said, some people respond to something very simple in a very negative way. And somebody else, you'll say the same thing to them. And it's like you just gave them a million dollars. You know, so I do think that um, the, the the difference between a good clinician, between a good faculty member, between a good CEO, between a good barista at your coffee shop, it doesn't, it's how do you engage with people? Do you actually listen to what they say? Are you trying to respond in a way that's going to meet them where they are and help them get to where they want to be? Um, that... That human piece is, I think, the key to your career. It's the key to your personal life. It's your key to everything. The better you are at interacting with humans. And, and it can't, it's got to be authentic. I mean, it can't be played so that I'm, I'm going to tell them what I think they want to hear. I mean, if, if it's not authentic, if it's not sincere, people figure out in a second. They can tell when you're just telling them some story. Um, so I, I think you gotta be yourself. You gotta live who you really are and live you know, live a sincere life, but. I totally
1: agree with that. I've been finding a lot in my own rotation that, you know, obviously I am not nearly as skilled or as educated as a therapist that I'm working alongside, but I'm getting good outcomes with my very underdeveloped clinical practice just by communicating well with my patients, making them enjoy their time there, making them like being around me and trusting me. Um, and so I wanted to switch gears just a little bit here. Um, so you are obviously someone who has a lot of experience, not only being interviewed, but interviewing other people. And you know to kind of talk about this communication more, you know, have you noticed that that's something that you look for in interviews as well? Because all of us are going to be, you know, interviewing for jobs in the near future, you know? And so when someone walks into the room, are you looking, are you reading them already before they even talk to you? Are you looking for the
3: sincerity and all that stuff? Um, I have a, a something that I was going to say that's still stuck in my head. That So I'm going to get back to Humble, Hungry, Smart in a second, but- I was going to say, you were talking about interviewing, and I think when you're, you're gathering a um, medical history from patients, um, actually, did I just see you guys last week uh, at lunch? You that might have been a different set of PT students. It was, so. it was. So I was saying to them, they were going on their first clinicals, and I said, you are going to both go out there and feel like you know nothing. And you're going to find out that geez i actually know more than i thought about the things that you didn't think you know anything about you're going to find out that you knew more than you really thought you did but you're also then going to realize oh my gosh there's all this stuff that i didn't even think existed or didn't even know existed that in the same instant of your first clinicals you're realizing how much you know and at the same time you're realizing how little you know so anyway that was just a thought um but When I used to um, work with students, and we were usually talking about back pain, but we were talking about um, patients and gathering information, and I would say, I bet that I could spend a half an hour just talking to a patient with back pain and never touch them, and when they left, they will feel better than if you had a half an hour with them and you could do anything you wanted. Because especially if you're a McKenzie person, you don't have to actually touch them. That if you can just be able to work with people so that they feel more comfortable and you give them strategies and them feeling that they're empowered, that they have control over their pain. So I think the whole communication thing is the center of everything. So from an interview perspective, um, we a few years ago, um, I was I was searching for two vice presidents. And so we had search committees and the search committees were both starting at the same time. And I went into two different meetings in two different days and they said, you know, what are you looking for? These are going to be key people on your team. What are you looking for? And I was like, I don't know. I'll know when I see it, which wasn't very helpful to them. So I went home and I wrote this little two page thing. And my things that I was looking for, were um, they need to be normal. And my version of normal is, you know, something that you wouldn't mind just hanging out, talking with and, you know, enjoying time with that they can be quirky. I like quirky. I I mean, they don't have to be, you know, mainstream, but they have to be somebody that's not so odd that you just can't figure out how to even interact with. They have to be normal. So I like normal. Um, I like willing to work really hard was was mine. Now, I think Lencioni's hungry is better because Some people will work really hard if you say, if I ask you to do this, will you do this? And they're like, oh sure, I'll do it. Hungry means you have the internal drive to go do it, whatever it is, to get that job done. That's hungry. Um, And then smart is that whole people smart. So when I interview, I interview a lot of people that aren't people that I'm technically gonna hire. So when other people are hiring, Sometimes I say, you know what? I just want to meet the candidates. Just give me 20 minutes. And I don't ask them anything about the job. I mean, kind of, sort of, but not about the technical parts of the job because a lot of times I don't really have the skills to talk to, you know, a controller or a CFO or anything. What do I know about, I've never taken a business class. Don't be asking me. I mean, I can do math. My mom was a math teacher. I can do numbers. I love data, but I'm not the guy to tell you, you know, what the IRS is looking for. So, but that's not what i that's not why i meet with them i want to hire the right human so the questions i ask are just about humble hungry and smart and i figure if you already have an accounting degree you probably know how to do the accounting you know and there's thousands of those people you know if i'm hiring somebody that's going to be a basketball coach what do i know about basketball i was a wrestler they didn't let us touch the basketballs. so I'm not going to ask him about basketball strategy, but I'm going to figure out, are they going to be more worried about their record or their team's record and how their uh, players turn out as human beings? Are they going to be more worried? You know, I'm interested in humble people. That humble doesn't mean that you're not confident. doesn't mean that you're not uh, expecting to win. That you're, But you are have enough humility to realize that, you know, so I'm... I look for the humble person, confident, humble person. I look for the person that's willing to work hard and is hungry. Now, I don't ask them, are you hungry? You ask them questions about, you know, you ask me, you know, what's a typical day? You say, you know, what'd you accomplish last week? You know, or when when I saw your record was whatever, or I saw you have this on your resume, how did you get to there? And you find out whether every sentence they start with is I. Or is it, you know, I had this great team and we worked on this. Or I was lucky enough to be in this position. And that's what, you know, gave me the opportunity to learn the things I needed to learn. You know, so you can find out humility from the way people answer the question. You can find out if they're hungry. When you say, you know, if if I just wanted you to tell me um, how to design a new program in the wellness center and get students to um, participate in it can they number one understand the smart side of that as far as human behavior and what's it going to take to get students to engage in it and can they figure out how to design the program and if they don't have the skill are they going to say you know what i don't know but i know that there's these three people that i could call you know so in an interview to me, you, you need to tell them that you are confident enough and you can do the job. I mean, that's what you're there for. Um, and you need to sell yourself. But you can sell yourself as somebody that already knows it all, and has already you know, been there, done that, and is so confident that if the person interviewing you has been around more than a week, if you are a new PT walking into my clinic and I'm a 30-year veteran, I pretty much know what you know, because I know you just barely got out of school. So don't tell me you got to figure it figured out. You've seen like three of those. When you've seen 300 of them, I'll start believing you. I mean, if I'm going to have knee surgery, I don't want to go to the, to the surgeon that it's, it's their first one. That doesn't mean I'm not going to hire, hire you, but you need to come in saying, these are the things I can do. This is how I'm going to bring who I am as a human being to your team. And I'm going to get better every day. I'm not going to be there today, but tomorrow I'm going to be better than today. And the day after that, I'm going to be better than I was the day before that. And in a couple of years, you're going to be a whole lot more proud of me than you are the first day I walk in. You know, so I think, to me, that humble, hungry, smart piece is what I'm looking for. And I think if you kind of use that as your frame as to how do you answer questions in an interview, it's particularly when you're brand new out of school you don't have like, I was at this job and I did that. You don't have that stuff to fall back on in your interview. So you have to sell you as a human being because that's all you got, but you guys are pretty awesome. you know. So it's not like you got to you know sell junk, you're selling great stuff, but you have to sell you as a human being.
2: Yeah, I think that really feeds into the theme we've kind of seen with other episodes is like we're lifelong learners, especially as PTs. That's only going to contribute to like our patient outcomes. Like it's going to make us better humans. It's going to make us better PTs. It's going to get our patients better. And like, not like we've already said, not every patient's the same that comes through our doors. Like they're going to have different things going on. And I mean, even in our first five weeks, I've noticed how much I've already grown from asking questions like. I didn't know what the protocol was for a rotator cuff repair my first week, but now I'm pretty familiar with it and I can run a person through their program pretty quick, you know. I think um, I think it's just such an important characteristic or important thing to hold on to as a PT too, um, is to always be learning. Um, also, I wanted to ask You know, we're coming up on our last year in PT school and there's just so many options with our degree now. You know, we can go travel, we can go residency, we can pursue a specialty, we can go anywhere in the country. How do you suggest, or like what advice do you have for students kind of trying to figure out where they're going? Like, cause I know I'm personally I don't know yet. I have a lot of things I want to look into. And um, how do you suggest kind of narrowing that down and really finding where you're, where um, to go after graduation?
3: Well, a couple things. One one is, um, and I, I say this all the time I don't know how old you are. And it's, you know, if this was a job interview, it would be illegal for me to ask, but I'm pretty sure I'm old and you're not. And I'm pretty sure you got a lot of years, your career left that the the first job is not going to be the last job. <clears throat> and probably neither is the second one or the third one. That we put so much pressure. So I have four children. My oldest is a PA, my second one just finished dental school, and my third one is a nurse. And been around these pieces. And my my son is just finishing up freshman year. So in high school. So he's got a ways. But you know you're, you're not picking your last job you're not first of all you're not picking it because somebody's going to pick you but um you're not interviewing for that last job so i think you need to you need to really dig a, a little bit into yourself onto what are you passionate about what's going to keep you excited every day for the next three years you know you shouldn't be thinking about a year because if you're going to commit to a job, and they're going to commit, and they're going to train you and develop you, I think, I'm not saying that it, it means that you have to be there for three years, and if it's horrible, after six months, you just hang out. I'm just saying that when you go into something, you should be thinking, you know, two, three years, some, something that's long enough that you're not barely learning what's going on, and you're already moving on to the next thing. But, but so I think you need to start with kind of what what's, are you passionate about? And if there's five things you're passionate about, pick one of them. You know, I mean, I started out as an orthopedic guy and actually I was going to do rehab, but I started out as an orth, I ended up a university president. I had no idea, you know, so you're not going to just, the likelihood that you're going to come in and you're going to stick in the same job and do the same thing for a 40 year career is pretty slim. I mean, and if you do, God bless you. Not that criticizing. So I think you got to go with what's passionate. I also think that you need to not try and separate out your personally. You're asking me so I'm telling you my opinion. Separate out your personal life and your professional life. That I've just been a human being. That was doing some clinical work and doing some teaching and had kids and had a wife and was my wife actually and I worked together almost our entire careers that our kids grew up in our uh offices you know on campus and they didn't know it so our life has just been you know now Gannon and you know this is my life I mean I go and watch you guys sports I watch the students I'm worrying about whether you're doing the right things at night I mean I, my whole life revolves around my job, but it's not my job. This is just who I am. This is just what I do. So I think the more you can integrate your life and your, your work in a positive way, the better off you are. Because if you try and have this separate life thing you do, and then the work thing you do, and then the you know, relationship thing you do, you don't have time for all that separation. And I don't even think that there's value in it, that if you're really doing something that brings you joy and something you're passionate about, you, it, when you go to work, it's not going, you're going to go to be hanging out with your patients because you love your patients. You want to just be there and you want to see how they're doing today, just like you would your mother or your father. You, you know, so the more your life just becomes one thing, um, I think the better off you are. And your life's going to evolve. So to me, which then goes to where do I want to work? Well, do I want to work at this particular job because it's the best job, but it's in a city and I don't want to be in a city. I want to be in the suburbs or it's in a city that's on the other side of the country and my family's over here and I'm never going to see my family. I think you need to think about how your life is going to be better. So that first job might be not the perfect job you were thinking because you really wanted to be in whatever. You wanted to do neuro, but you were preferring, you know, peds, but it's an adult neuro, but it's in my hometown and, you know, I, my parents are there and at whatever time of life, you know, so I think you need to put the whole package of what is my life going to be like? So like traveling PT, my daughter actually is a nurse and she was, she's, dating a guy, a good guy. They were thinking about doing traveling nurses, nursing. She's been out for about two years now and decided she wasn't going to. Um, but she, want, she wanted to see the country. She wanted to see practice in different parts of the country and wanted to live in different cities. That's cool. So do it for six months. Do it for a year. Do it for two years. You have to do it forever. And I had really good friends out of college that a couple years, they went and did traveling therapy in probably five or six different cities in different parts of the country so that they could decide if they wanted to live on the East Coast or the West Coast or they wanted to live down South. And they picked the part of the country because they had actually lived there for six, nine months and said, yeah, that's kind of cool to visit, but I'm not gonna be there. And then, you know, so their job was something that brought them to different places where they then kind of felt what's gonna feel like home and then once they figured out what was going to feel like home, there's PT jobs of every kind in every city. So it's not like if I'm going to do, if I'm going to do adult neuro or I'm going to do you know ortho, I got to go to this city or that city. They got them in every city. There's 40 of them everywhere. So you know, I think don't put so much pressure that that first one's got to be the one. You know. Find a place to be, you know, don't just jump in and do anything, but find a place to be, test it out, have your plan B if it doesn't work. But, you know, I mean, when you start buying houses and now you're kind of getting yourself in pretty deep, you know, that not that you can't sell them again, but you know what I mean. But if you're living in an apartment and finish up your lease, go somewhere else if you need to, you know? So to me, I would say, find something you're passionate about. If you think kind of the neuro end of things is your thing, do that for a while. If you're in a big hospital and you're not really sure, go work for a larger hospital. Because then you can do some rotations, do some neuro, you can do some outpatient ortho, you can, you know, work your, your regular hours. These days you guys are working, you know, four 10 hour days or something. And you got three days off. Go for four hours that other day and you're doing adult neuro and go do you know orthopedics for a half a day and decide that you love or you hate it. I and mean, just stop doing it. It's a part-time thing, do it on the side. And if it doesn't work out, do something else. Or if you love it, you go, Yeah, maybe I should be doing that. And then you get that job, you know. So I think give yourself options. Every job's going to be work, so also don't have some fantasy that you're going to wake up every day going, oh, I could either go to the beach, play tennis or golf, or I could go to work, and you're going to pick work as your choice every day, because vacation is still typically better than work. I'm just going to tell you, not that I do much vacation, but when I do, it always seems better than work, you know, so work is work, you know, you, you, you got to do it, you got to make a living. Um. All
1: right, I'll stop talking. No, no, that was a great answer, honestly. And I think it's a cool thing to think about, too. Um, because our profession has so many avenues that you can go down, you're not stuck into one rabbit hole when you graduate with a PT degree. You know, you could choose so many different things. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and actually talk about kind of your work with MJ and, and also MJ's focus and work at Gannon. So um, for our listeners, um, people who don't know, I was actually a copywriter for MJ um, at the Good For You wellness program at Gann University in my undergrad years. And it was a great time working with her. Um, I came into that role actually because MJ uh, met my mom, I believe at Villa Maria Academy. My mom was a nurse there and I had just graduated from high school with some like writing award or whatever. and And MJ and my mom talked and she mentioned it in passing and MJ was like, oh, I'm looking for a writer for this wellness program I'm starting. Um, I also know that MJ and you started, a like an school wellness program in Buffalo as well. Um, so can you like, you know, talk about those, um, to us and also, you know, answer like h- what need or what drove you to, to give MJ, um, or, or, or to help MJ start that program at Gannon, you know? Well, that's, that's.
3: Funny choice of words there. So I'll say a couple of things. I mean, Mary, so MJ was never MJ until we moved here, which I think is funny that now she's MJ, but um, she was, she was Mary or Mary Jean. Now she's MJ because it's cool. And she likes being young. So when people call her MJ, so she loves the MJ thing and, and she's adopted that. We've been married for 29 years, knew each other for many years before that. And we've pretty much done everything together. I mean, we've worked at the same places. We've, you know, for years. Um, but Mary pretty much does what Mary's gonna do. You know, so the, I mean, the family, uh, oh, what was it called? Family Fit. And then there was, oh shoot, another one. Anyway, she started a uh, childhood obesity program that she knew that if you only try and work with the child, you're not going to be successful. So she, family fitness first. I think that was, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so that was all her. She was doing, Mary, is Mary's older than I am. So she already had her master's degree and was already doing um, uh, her research. That's how we met in the first place. But so she was, um, she started that business, ran that business, decided, I mean, business, I think she made $1 after eight years of running uh, the program, but um, it was a research study actually. I mean, so she was working um, on her tenure and things at Damon um, and started that. So I can't really take any credit for that other than making the boxes for wooden boxes for some of the, you know, activities that they were doing um, and just, you know, picking up messes and moving stuff around. So Mary, Mary doesn't need me to help her do anything. And, and I don't, you know, Mary has earned every job, every anything that she's ever gotten. But um, so some things like those, those are just Mary's. As we have spent our lives running together, biking together, walking together, a lot of random conversations. So as we've been looking at I've been trying to drive Gannon institutional planning. We did a lot of work on facilities and a lot of work on programs and a lot of work on enrollment in earlier strategic plans. And then the last strategic plan, you know, I kept saying, the only reason why we're getting these things done is because of the humans. It's because the employees are the ones that are the heart and soul. So we need to make sure that their health is important. And so, somewhat coincidental, as we're organizationally have a strategic plan goal of organizational health and of employee engagement, Mary happens to be getting her doctorate in wellness, essentially, in um, health promotion and disease prevention, is what she just got her PhD in. So, it just coincided, but it's not by chance, you know. So, I mean, I'm thinking what the institution and the people need. And I've got a wife who happens to be bringing those skills and we're looking at a new rec and wellness center that as we're building the rec and wellness center, I need somebody to help me figure out what kind of programming for students, what kind of programming for employees do we need? Well, the person that I live with happens to have a PhD in that stuff, so I might want to ask her, you know, so She was developing those things. She has a huge heart and a huge passion for community, community engagement. So she started um, uh, uh, Club Fit at East High School, when East was a high school. Um, So Club Fit, again, that was her thing. She just kind of translated what she was doing with that adolescent obesity work to a fitness program which really turned into more of a self-esteem program than anything else for young girls at east high which then just turned into this huge thing and she's willing to talk to anybody so i had some connections with people in foundations and so i introduced her to them and she walked in and you've had conversations with my wife 20 minutes later they were like how much money do you need you know so She walks in, she pitches them these great ideas because as I said before, the ideas weren't about things that were gonna make her better. They were community needs. They were adolescent young women that needed uh, something to be engaged that were gonna help them um, improve as human beings, be more self-confident, help them be successful. So she's pitching the needs of these young women to a foundation that funds that kind of stuff. It wasn't, I have this great research stuff that I want to do. It was, here's a need. You can get on board with me. I'll do all the work. You just give me a couple bucks and we can make a difference in these in these people's lives. You know, that's a tough pitch to walk away from. You know, so Mary was, you know, that was all her. Now I had set up Erie Gaines and Gannon's connection in the community as a goal and a big part of, I mean, Gannon was already doing it way before I got here, but structured in a way that the academic programs, the faculty and students engagement out in the community became a more integral part of who you were as a university. And then Mary's programs just fit right into that, but they were her programs, but they fit into the institutional structure and the institutional goals that I was trying to build. Um, I think St. Joseph House is a good example of that. We were walking down here on, uh, it was, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Give Day or Day of Caring. I think it was Day of Caring in the spring. And Mary and I were out raking leaves and doing things with the students down by Bayview Park. And we decided afterwards, because my wife never gets tired, so after, you know, four hours of raking, we should go for a walk. <clears throat> so we go for a walk, and she lived in New York City for about 10 years, you know, so we love urban communities, we love, you know, um, and we're not afraid of, you know, diversity and, and, and that, um, uh, we love, we love difference, you know, so we're walking, uh, going through a walk down on Second Street, Front Street, Third Street, and it's pretty rough. I mean, as far as the houses and the, um, and she says, you know, we, we should do something. And she had tried to pitch to me a year before that, that we should buy a house and have the young women that went through club fit come to be at Gannon, in an Archbishop Gannon Scholars Program that Gannon had, but we should buy the house and they should live in the house. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Well, there's a a carriage house behind, we could live in the carriage house. They said, so wait a minute, I'm gonna have a dozen teenage women that I have to be wearing, I'm like, no way, I am not doing this. But of course my wife coaches high school tennis, so she's got no problem with that. But anyway, so I got her off of the, we should be buying this house thing. I'm like, that's not gonna work. So instead she pitches as we're walking, that we should build a house in the neighborhood that could be kind of a hub for our West Bayfront and could be a neighborhood model house that the neighbors then see you know, and we're still working on it. It's not perfect, but, you know, you, you take care of the house. You, you invite people into your home. You run programming out of there. Um, you allow Gannon employees to live in there, young employees, so that they can save some money and they can go out and have home ownership. So we're just walking down the street. She goes, we got to do this. So she starts looking at these houses and I'm like, I am not buying these houses and renovating them. So we ended up building St. Joseph House. As an idea that just came off of my wife being crazy as the day is long saying, we should just do this. We should just, okay. So I always joke that I, so, you know, if you want to start a fire, you need fuel and you need a spark. And I tend to be the fuel that if once I start something, it's going to get done and it becomes an obsession. It doesn't matter what it is. It just wants something. So I tend to be the fuel and Mary tends to be the match that she'll just light the match and throw it in and go, why are you so fixated on this? Because you know that once I get going down a path, I am not going to stop. So you threw the match. It's your fault. You got me on this path and there's no way to stop until we're done. You know? So that's been kind of our, she's the match, she's the igniter and I'm the fuel. And we, we get to a point where we go, okay, that's something that needs to happen. And Then she just tosses in the match, and but it's also nice having a team at Gannon that has just massive heart. That it's not, I don't do much of anything around here. I turn to people and say, Geez, my wife just threw this mat. No, I mean, you know, whoever has a great idea, we got to make this work. And then people just jump in and go, Okay, what do we got to do? Because you hire and you develop humble, hungry, and smart people because their heart. And their soul are in the right place, and they got the mission, and they can't get off of it. That if they think it's going to be something good for the students, they think it's going to be something good for the community, they think it's going to change. And you know, we we started talking about transforming lives, not as just some seems like a cool idea. We spent a day in a retreat saying, "What is it we are trying to do?" Um, and then we kind of socialized that idea that. Transforming lives is not just a powerful tagline. It's what we're about. We are trying to make a change every day. And as you said before, it's got to start here. You, you have to transform your own life. You have to be on a mission to get better every single day. Or nobody else buys into it either. They're like, oh, yeah, you, you want me to get better. But what about you? I mean, I haven't seen you, you know, doing the things you're asking me to do.
2: That's great. Um, so to kind of wrap up, um, kind of going off of you talking about you and um, your wife's work in the community through Gannon, um, how what advice do you have for you know new grads, PT students, at kind of kickstarting their role and improving their communities wherever they end up? Because it is a as physical therapists, we are in kind of that unique position to not only address like the health and wellness needs of the community, but like just about any need they may have. So what kind of advice do you have for um, kind of getting started in that finding roots and really making something out of community work?
3: Um, I think the, the starting place is you have to actually want to do it. Because if you're not starting from a place that going out and doing the community work is something that is going to bring you joy, fulfillment, whatever the thing is that's going to drive you, it takes time. You know, so I mean, if, you're, if you'd rather be, you know, taking a nap or drinking your coffee or doing whatever, so it does start with you have to have the desire to do it and to put in the time and energy to do it. Um, then it's asking, talking to people. So I'm all, I spend more time asking people questions, which drives them crazy. But, you know, when, when you're just hanging out at the grocery store and somebody's talking about and you overhear something or somebody's got a shirt on, my wife is, is the interrogator. I mean, anybody she meets, I'm like, really? You just asked that poor person 85 questions in the last seven minutes. Could you just leave them alone? They were just trying to buy their coffee, you know, but... You you see somebody's got a shirt on that is a habitat shirt or is a whatever shirt and like, oh, that's cool. You you need you need to engage with the humans, you know. So I think it's whatever community you're in, ask a ton of questions. When you're sitting, you know, at the diner and the waitress or waiter is coming over, say, you know, what do you do on the weekend? What is there to do around here? You know, I'm looking to help out. Is there, you know, I don't know if you're, my my daughters are, my daughters into dogs. And so she, you know, I mean, whatever it is, ask the person at the diner, ask the person that you happen to see their shirt. And yeah, some of them are going to look at you like, bug off, what are you, you know, messing with me? I'm just standing here, don't I? So yeah, ask, you walk away, you go, sorry, I didn't didn't mean to bother you. And you ask the next person, you know? So I think, You got to ask a ton of questions and a ton of people questions. And once you latch on to one of them, you got to, you got to be active. It needs to be action oriented. So even if it's not the thing that you really were excited about, you ask somebody to say, well, we're doing this thing this weekend, you know, down at Bayview park and, you know, it's whatever, they're going to be doing, you know, a water park and whatever, and you're like, "Eh, I don't really feel like that's my thing, go anyway. Because you're going to meet a bunch of people at that thing that are kindred spirits that want to serve the community. And then when you're hanging out doing that thing that was okay, but not really what you're looking for, you ask those people. I was really hoping that, is there anybody around that does this? Or is there anybody around that does that? And somebody go, well, not exactly. But next weekend, and then you catch on to the next one. So it's all about, we, I used to joke with, and I don't remember where it came from, but you know, people say, have a good day. Our standard phrase when our kids were younger was make it a great day. So it doesn't just happen. You have to make a good life happen. You have to make things happen. So I think, you know, to me, be passionate, be engaged, ask questions, talk to people, Um, you know, I don't know about you, but and you will not believe this, but I am by nature an introvert. I mean, if I had my choice to just go sit in the corner and drink my coffee and not talk to anybody, that would be my preference. But number one, I don't really get paid to do that and my life doesn't, I live with MJ, so that's not going to happen. And What level of fulfillment in life is it if you just hang out by yourself? So you got to push yourself out of that comfort zone sometimes and be a little more extroverted than you may want to be or you feel comfortable being, Um, but you find your own level of that. You know, I mean, I'm not nearly as extroverted as my wife, but I'm more than happy to talk to people, you know, that um, ask a lot of questions, get engaged, do things you have to be about action because if you just think about it and you wish you you're going nowhere do stuff and some of the stuff you do is going to be stupid and it's going to be miserable failures and you're going to try and and so you go yeah that was stupid that didn't work very well and then you do something different you know that's that's the way you get better that's the way you learn i love
1: that dr taylor So that's it for today, guys. You heard it here first. Stay humble, have that hunger and be smart. You know, if you want it, you know, don't just wish for it, work for it. That was all great. Thank you so much for your time. Um, You know, we started this podcast because not only do we love Gannon, but we love the PT profession. So who better to talk to um, than you? So thank you, Dr. Taylor.
3: Thanks. Glad I had the chance to talk to you. We'll catch up again another time.